Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. sisters and welcome to our show. Our guest today is Denise Brody, the founder of Rebel Talent, which is a nonprofit organization striving to help those with neurodiverse minds be successful at work by bridging gaps, connecting people, and promoting the message that the future of work isn't disruption, it's collaboration. Denise is also a prolific writer, having been an editor at Glamour, Shape, Fitness, and USA Today. Her current gig is as a senior contributor at Forbes, where she writes about mental health in the workplace. In 2007, Denise authored The Elephant in the Playroom, a book strongly influenced by her own special needs child about 41 families living with the highs and lows of raising quirky kids. Now Denise is focusing on the highs and lows of being a quirky worker, like those of us with non-traditional minds who have a learning disability or ADHD or a mental health diagnosis or all of the above. Her upcoming book, titled The Elephant in the Office, is a memoir about how she learned of her own diagnosis, how it affected her family, and how she now helps people dealing with similar issues. We are really, really lucky to have her with us today. Welcome, Denise. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, we should start by admitting that Mags and I are pretty much the definition of quirky workers. Um, Both of us have mental health diagnoses. I'm sure I should have an ADD diagnosis, and our brains are certainly uh, in the category of neurodiverse. Would you explain a little bit about what that means and how it's exemplified in the workplace? Sure. So neurodiversity is a very long word that basically says all kinds of minds. It recognizes that, that brains are wired differently. That's it. Um, it's not, you don't have to go into the neuroscience of it or anything, but the two important takeaways about neurodiversity in the workplace are that, number one, we want them to be recognized and we want them to be respected. And that doesn't always happen. What would be an example of a neurodiverse mind? So for example, I worked with someone who had Tourette's. Would anxiety be considered neurodiversity? I would bet it is. You're a different kind of thinker. You um, have different reactions to things. And it's a diagnosis. So I would say ADHD, anyone on the spectrum, autism spectrum, mm-hmm. um, dyslexia, dysgraphia, uh, executive functioning, those are all ways in which people are wired differently. Their brains, you know, hop, skip and jump through the hoops <laughs> to get to their work differently. If you have any of those things, often you have anxiety because you don't quite fit in in exactly. the traditional way. Exactly. Like most people with ADHD are also, it's, there's a comorbidity for um, depression and for anxiety. I, I think the other, the other important thing to say about ADHD is that a lot of people who are my age, Gen Xers, 
we always felt maybe something was different about us or we got too nervous about things or we had sort of a sensory response to bicycling or, you know, there were no words for what it was that we had. And there was really no research going on about girls and ADHD in the seventies and eighties. So then those people like me, and there's a lot of them enter college or, or the workforce and think, there's something different about my brain. And it often happens that they get diagnosed at the same time their child gets diagnosed. Right. It's kind of like you are a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. Right. And the other big picture thing that happens with ADHD is sensory processing disorder. So that means feel, touch, smell, all of those things are hyperactively active in your brain and you're very aware of them. So someone tapping their pencil, tapping their foot, someone chewing gum, someone spinning in their chair back and forth, someone coloring in their notebook with a squeaky sound. (laughs) All of those things will probably trigger some sort of annoyance, I would say. Right. right. And, And people who have sensory issues sometimes crave more sensory input. So they do things that to other people look kind of annoying you know, because they're, they're sort of craving more touch. We, we, we used to carpool with a, um, a boy in my son's class and he was, he was much bigger than the other kids. So I said, sit in front with me because there's more room. And after the first two times I, I said, you've pushed every single button on this console. Like you are not allowed to, to sit in the front anymore. If you're going to do this, you have to sit on your hands because I can't drive with like this. Mm-hmm. And he laughed and he would most of the time sit on his hands because he wanted to be in front. But that was, he just couldn't stop touching everything. So when you bring neurodiversity into the workplace, I can see that that would be challenging, especially if you have very traditional bosses. Or a very traditional structure of your workplace, a traditional office. Yeah, I think the open office has been just horrific for people who are neurodiverse for various reasons. There's a lot of sense that people can see what you're doing, how how are you progressing with your assignment that day, and also there's just a lot of random noises, and there are people who eat their lunch at their desk, and there's so there's weird smells because someone brought in, you know, turkey, whatever it is, and it smells really sardines. good. <laughs> but, sardines, you know. which I did the last time I was with Abby, I... I ate sardines and she like basically could no longer stay in the apartment. I couldn't. It was was awful. (laughs) And then there's back, there's also just like things you wouldn't notice, like the noise of having to or wanting to pay attention to so many things is exhausting. You don't even realize it. And then when you get home, you think, I am so tired. And if I were to tell that to someone who worked right next to me, they'd say, we didn't do anything tiring today, Denise. But. Right, right. <laughs> so you're, you have a venture called Rebel Talent, and I know that you help employers and employees create safe, collaborative workspaces. So what are some of the things that Rebel Talent focuses on in order to achieve that goal? I usually ask someone to make a list of how they do their best work. That could be wearing headphones in the morning, with pencils, not on the computer, you know, when I have a long time, when I have a tight deadline, when I um, 
can ask a lot of questions or when I can be, you know, take my own initiative and go on my own way. Those are all examples of things of the way you work, right? Mm -hmm. And if let's just imagine you're not neurodiverse, you could still give that, if you were new at work, you could still give that list to your new boss and say, just as we get started, you should know these things. And I would bet you that your boss would just really be so happy that you did that because it's out in the open the way that you work. And I think openness is super important. Collaboration is super, super important. And it takes away this issue of, do I tell the person what I have? Do I do? No, you tell somebody how you want to be able to do your best work. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Um, That's a really interesting distinction. Sounds like you're talking less about disclosing maybe like I have anxiety or I have depression or I'm bipolar and more about what that means for how, not if you will do your job, but how you will best do your job. Right. So if I am very anxious, how I will do my job is by setting boundaries for myself. Mm -hmm. I will take lunch no matter what for one hour and maybe try and get exercise or put my headphones on, not be around anybody. I will say, you guys, this four o'clock meeting, I'm going to be 10 minutes late because I'm going to be on the phone when really all you're going to be doing is sitting in your office meditating (laughs) with your eyes closed. I think you have to carve out these little spaces and sometimes it's the bathroom where you just take three huge deep breaths and start over because you've got you've got to restart your system somehow and it's not going to happen in a big meeting. Right, not. right. I like that idea that your communication though is much more about figuring out what you need to do your right. job well than it is necessarily talking about your own diagnosis or, you know, which a lot of people don't feel comfortable in the workplace being able to do. And even if you do it, it's not necessarily telling people what you need. I never really thought about that. But now that I am thinking about it, it's like, wow, I should have communicated that better to people that I've worked with in the past. It might've gone better. (laughs) Yeah, I think some of my circumstances would have definitely gone better. In the beginning of my career, my first 12 years of work were in a very, very creative place. So there were no rules. That was the rule. (laughs) <laughs> so I never have to think about that. I, I did. I took it for granted. Right. And then I moved to a very traditional office and I was bowled over by how different it was. I just didn't know anything else. What kinds of issues did you find in a more traditional setting? People have a job description and they stick to it. So <laughs> when job descriptions are very rigid... It's, it's pretty traditional that people say, I leave at five. I take an hour lunch at 1230. You know, I don't enter numbers into the system. I only analyze them. Everything becomes much more compartmentalized. Right. And everything becomes much more about you're at your desk at a certain time and then you leave at a certain time, which for some people, particularly with mental health issues or neurodiverse issues, that is more challenging. Right. When you work with employees, is that do you talk about creating allies in the office and, and how to go about doing that? I give everybody three months to say, I've created some friendships here. I, mm-hmm. I feel like I trust these people. It's not going to happen automatically. 
And you don't know what went on before you got here. How do you help employers? What, what does Rebel Talent do for employers in order to make it easier for them? The best thing I, I did recently was this um, workplace world mental health initiative. Ooh. And it was in the advertising industry in New York City. And there are all kinds of people there. Some of them were HR, some of them were communications, it didn't matter. And I was the moderator and I asked them specifically, how would you deal with X? And how is your style going to work with this new neurodiverse thing that's happening? And then what questions do you have for people that they would never offer the answers up? And we just had this really open discussion and it was amazing. Sounds amazing. I mean, you know, just opening up the conversation is so important. Yeah. And these women were so great. I mean, they were just so smart and they came from, you know, Reddit and Thrive and none of them had the same kind of office. So it was very nice to see, you know, it didn't really matter. If you could collaborate, you could get much farther. That's great. Don't discount as an employer. I think employers are learning. Don't discount the, the value of simply asking, how are you doing? Are you okay? How's your work going? You know, it's literally that there's a connection and someone cares. And no, that's not going to keep you from being depressed. (laughs) But think of it like a neural network, like a big octopus, right? The more nodes you have attached to people, the more supported you're going to feel. So leaders have to start putting out feelers like that on a day-to-day basis. Right. 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 So talking about the mental health conversation, what are your thoughts on how that's going? I mean, I know that when we were all the same age, me, you, and Mags, and when we were kids, there wasn't the vocabulary to talk about mental health issues, to talk about, you know, what we're now saying is neurodiversity or quirkiness. Do you think we've come a long way? What I'm watching is people are seeing what's happening in the news and what's happening with younger people. And they're bringing it to work. They're realizing there isn't that much separation between work and life, that that's an outdated model. And that's really encouraging because then you're not a robot. You're, you know, it may come from like fear of all these robots coming. Like we got to start to be a little more personal or we're not, you know, (laughs) just like robots. Kidding aside, I, I think there's so much information available. And if you show people that there, there are resources you know, and, and that you're aware of the outside world and what's going on, it makes the conversation so much easier. So I think that's trickling in. Have I gone to luncheons where two or three people talk about how they recovered from depression and walked out of the room and, and every one of the very, very lovely people there said, but that doesn't happen here. <laughs> right. Wow. You know, so there's still some blind spots. There's some blind spots. And I would say, I would venture to say it's fairly generational and that boomers were never told to bring their personal life to work whatsoever. Right. So I think anybody else, actually, it's different for. So the next thing I would say is when I went to do this piece after the workplace initiative, all of this stuff came out and it was all these statistics laid out on my desk and these little post-its that basically showed people were are willing to help other people, but nobody asks. You know, 77% of the time, I think the statistic was someone was willing to help men or women. It didn't matter. But nobody asked for fear of looking weak. That's 
really encouraging because that again is that idea of the octopus putting out all the you know <laughs> having sort of nodes and connections to all kinds of people in your office some of the connections you would never think that you would be wanting for example i never wanted to talk to it that was not something that i i was the person who would mess everything up everything you know i would get yelled at so when I really thought about it, my next job, I said, I'm going to make friends with the IT person. Mm. I'm going to try my hardest to be that person who learns from you and doesn't make these horrible mistakes, right? And then they become an ally because they know at least you're trying. Right. I was in one job when I first really started dealing with panic attacks. And I have to say, I was fairly overqualified for the job, which is sort of what saved me because I missed so much work. But I was very overqualified for that job. So when I was there, I could do it quite well. Otherwise, I don't know if I could have held on to it too much, which I think is a big problem when you're dealing with mental health issues is that it's hard to hold on to jobs because part of dealing with terrible anxiety or terrible depression, sometimes at least, is that you know, you can't get out of the house. Right. Or you're late for work every day. From experience, mm-hmm. what I would say is that it behooves everyone who has a close friend like this not to say, oh, I'll avoid them for now or they don't want to talk about it. I I really think you can keep it from stewing for, <laughs> for so long and you feel like someone's on your side and you think, oh, I should really ask for some help. Right. It's, it's hard. Um in terms of work, when it feels like it's really hard to get out of the house, you know, and, and show up at a job. This is why I telecommute. (laughs) You know, often that's the time when people, you know, look at going on disability because they literally get to the point where they don't know that they can show up. And there's only so many excuses you feel like you can make. And you you have to be honest, because if you were the other coworker and you're Coworker didn't show up. There's a lot to be done that day that they're not getting to. Right. So while right. you want to be kind, you're part of a team. In another work situation I was in, my boss, who's still my friend, was able to say to me, "You know what? It's okay. Take off a week. Get yourself some help." So we were able to work it out. I think that's so rare. It's so rare. Yeah. I know all the bosses that I had in my past. None of them would have gone for that. Okay, but did you ask them? I didn't because I knew I couldn't. Okay, but was there a way for you to even acknowledge, I know I haven't made it into work and I know everybody's noticing. I am just really, really down right now and I want to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I think some workplaces, depending on what kind of job it is, what kind of boss you have, what kind of culture you have, are more open to that than others. And also, I think that it's been a while since I've worked for anyone other than Maggie, and um, it's changed. The mental health conversation is more acceptable. Work and life, the lines are getting a little bit less clear. In other words, we, you know, they were allowed a little bit to blend that. Whereas I think 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was, it was much more separate. You know, you leave your personal life at home kind of thing. There's a saying that managers can't be great coaches all by themselves. You could actually have a manager, a supervisor who wants to help you, but 
they don't know what the heck to do. And so if they're the kind of person who will call in confidentially another expert to say, you worked with someone like this before. What did what did you do? That sometimes is another way, again, of connecting. And so that's part of what you do is to help companies and people to figure out even the right questions to ask. Because I can see that a lot of managers wouldn't even sort of know what they're looking at enough to know to call in another expert. Right. You really have, you have two resources. One is you can go to HR and say, I'm, I may need accommodations. An accommodation can be um, a one-month leave. It could be a later start time. It could be Thursday afternoons you're out because you're going to therapy and you absolutely can't miss it. You can't really effectively, I, I don't think, talk to your manager about something like that if they don't seem like they know any any other way except their way. But you can go to HR. And most often, the accommodations don't cost anything. They don't require you to, you know, a lot of legal baloney. It's it's pretty simple. There's a network called askjan.org. And it's a government-run site that goes through absolutely every job accommodation you could imagine asking for. And it sets it up so that you know where in the process you would start. You could print things out to bring to your HR manager. It's there's so much great information. Thank that's, you for that. Really, yeah, we'll make sure we post that in the show notes. How did you decide to start up with this Rebel Talent? I started Rebel Talent because I am the original Rebel Talent. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I started to realize that I am someone who is the daughter of two therapists, the mother of one very, very sensitive child. And I have this unique gift of being able to connect and talk to different types of people and bring them together. And I also have the balls to do it. It's not easy to do. When I watched my son talk about how he was applying to certain jobs or his friends, I thought, these guys are so not ready. (laughs) They're very capable people, but they're so not ready to deal with authority. And they're so not ready for someone to challenge the fact that they just messed up all the paint can numbers and, you know, because the, you know, at a summer job, because they never explain they have dyslexia, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, which actually is a true story. Toby worked for a paint company and they, as an intern, they put in labeling paint cans and he <laughs> literally couldn't follow the tiny little letters. And he said, I don't know what to do. And I said, what do you mean you don't know what to do? You go to the manager and you say, this is not really worth it for you to have me doing this. <laughs> what else can I do? <laughs> and, and it worked out well, you know. Um, so I think also I'm in this, and you are too, the generation that's sandwiched in between. So I understand boomers and I understand millennials and and younger people. I worked with fax machine, rolling down all the paper all the way down the hallway when my boss was away and we had to you know, get corrections through a fax machine. And I also just created my own website. So it's a really nice thing to be able to know both sides of generational differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At this time is really a superpower because there's such a difference between the post millennials now, you know, I'm one of my nephews is 10 years old and his generation never had a moment 
where they weren't on screen. I mean, my millennial daughters grew up without the screen stuff as much and without the phones, the smartphones and all that kind of stuff until they were older. But the post-millennials, since they're born. Right. So, so it's, I think it's quite a talent to be able to, you know, to bridge the gap between, let's say, you know, Generation Xers even, those of us who didn't have computers until the end of college um, right. or later, and kids now who are proficient on an iPad by four months old. Yeah. The other reason I'm really good at this, to be honest, is I don't take a lot of baloney from people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think this is probably true of a lot of people who have ADHD, anxiety, any special need or or issue. You're hyper aware. You know when someone's telling the truth and when they're not. It's like a secret power, right? You know when someone's putting one over on you, they're gaslighting you. And I can say to other people who are just like me, you have intuition. That is a fabulous thing. You have intuition and you have creativity. You know how to do a workaround and you know how to laugh and have a sense of humor. You know how to create a different solution. You've been doing it all your life. Don't give it up. That's, you know, on the rebel talent side, talking to younger people or any age person going into a new job situation is do not enter from a, a point of having a scarlet letter A on your jacket enter knowing that you have a lot of strength. So a lot of this is your experiences in the workplace, first having been to a really creative workplace and then a much more um, buttoned up workplace, so to speak. And then also raising a special needs child, it sounds like also gave you a lot of insights. Yeah. And it's not that I didn't make a ton of mistakes along the way. I think I made huge mistakes in the traditional workforce that I look back on now and think, why didn't I do what I just said? You really don't want to be caught in that hamster wheel where you're up all night and then you go to work at 7 a.m. and then you have your kids to take care of and you feel like, I've got to hold on to this job, help. And um, sleep is so important. And taking time away from your work is so important, even if there are massive deadlines. And I never did that. I I just, I worked myself to the bone and it showed. Yeah. And I think a lot of us that deal with mental health issues feel like we have to compensate. Um, I know I certainly felt that way where I, you know, I was aware of where I wasn't pulling my weight, so to speak, and really tried to overcompensate in in other ways. So I I know that I felt pressure that way. And we've talked to a lot of anxiety sisters who who feel the same way. I agree with you about the working yourself to the bone is not, that's not a hamster wheel you want to get on. One of the things, if you talk about self-care and I, I, I don't usually use that word, but one of the things I recommend is finding books that are written by people like you. There's a book called, and first they make the beast beautiful. Yes. Yes. Sarah Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah Wilson. And she said some things in there. My mouth dropped open and I've been doing this for so long. I could not believe that she said, cause I, they were so, so like me and I put down the book and I thought, wow, I just felt such great relief, you know? Well, that's a good, that's a good entry into talking about your own books. I know you have one book out there and one book coming out. So do you want to talk about those a little bit? Sure. So the first book was Elephant in the Playroom. My son was very tiny. Um, You know, he had sensory issues. 
he was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, learning difficulties. There was nothing that wasn't on the plate, right? <laughs> right. And I would ask other moms, you know, hey, are you familiar with OT? Do you know what that means? Occupational therapy or do you ask for extra time, you know, during whatever? And people gave me half answers. And I thought there are bigger stories here because I know some of my best friends are telling me these really in-depth, gory stories. So there's got to be people who will anonymously or with their name on it, tell me about their their inner lives, whether they chose medication, how their in-laws reacted to them, what happened to their marriage, how to know when your kid was just taking over your life and you should be you know, more strict, whether this was genetic or this kid is just lazy and not getting things. So they poured their hearts out to me. And I think they felt relieved. I got about a hundred letters and I, I still get letters. That book was published a really long time ago. It was 2007. I get letters now from grandparents, kindergarten teachers, people who run library programs. They all say, oh, I had no idea what was going on with so many kids. This was a great overview. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm the child of two therapists, <laughs> but it's, it's that collective hive mind coming together yes. that is so spectacularly healing. Yes. That's anxiety sisters too. Definitely. Right. Your next book is about, is it about mental health issues in the workplace? Yeah, I've started it. I had to give myself some time to really ask myself, what was I ready to reveal? And what were the steps that I needed to take? That's what I've been doing for the past two years is sort of confronting every demon before I start doing a similar type book, a, you know, a collected voices from people um, in different kinds of offices. Because for example, I never said to my parents, I have ADHD. And my mom said, what are you talking about? It was this really bizarre conversation where my parents had to come to grips with the fact that they missed it. And once I told them, this is what I have, and I'm going to talk openly about it, which also freaked them out. Then, you know, that was, I jumped through one hoop. <laughs> right. The person that I'm, I spend the most time with, and I said to him, these are all the things that happen in my mind. And if you can deal with that, then we're good. And so that was another hurdle to say to a partner that, yeah, I'm kind of a handful, <laughs> but I'm also a lot of fun. <laughs> I feel like I have enough experience to say to other people, it's going to be okay. <laughs> right. I mean, even though you've had these differences, I mean, you've still been an editor at major publications. You know, you've written a book, you run a company. I mean, in other words, we can still do amazing things. You mentioned jan.org. Are there any other resources you'd want to recommend to our listeners? For ADHD, Kaleidoscope Society is great. It's an online community. I know the woman who started it. She and I had never met before. Her, her name is Margot. And we met at this conference in California and like we practically hugged each other. Like, you know, she just knew exactly the way I was. <laughs> wow. So, and it's a pretty, it's probably about the size of Anxiety Sisters, but it's all about women with ADHD. So I would highly recommend that. It's called again, Kaleidoscope? Yeah, Kaleidoscope Society. Excellent. Okay. 
my personal god <laughs> is Seth Godin. He's a marketer. Yes. And he writes this short one paragraph blog every morning. And it's so clarifying. It's like a horoscope. <laughs> wow. I love it. Seth'sblog.com. And it's the great thing is it's just bare bones. It's like, here's my blog. Bye. well thank you thank you so much for being on our podcast and spending this time with us it was very edifying oh it's been great for me and if anyone needs help a simple email that says anxiety sisters in the subject line in my linkedin i'm happy to talk and find someone a resource i i just recently had a friend of a friend of a friend email me (laughs) <laughs> from <Okay>. Canada. <laughs> right. So if you're, if you're struggling with workplace issues with mental health or neurodiversity, a reach out to Denise might be very helpful for you. Right. You can read Denise's columns at Forbes.com. You can learn more about Rebel Talent at elephants-everywhere.com. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you can also connect with her on Twitter. Uh, her handle is at dbrody, B-R-O-D-E-Y. I'm totally open to connecting. I I love talking to people. It's very helpful for me as a reporter also. Not that I'm going to tell your story, but but it's background background information to feel out what trends are happening and what I should be writing about at Forbes. Well, thank you again. We have some announcements. First of all, if you don't know about our amazing e-course, it is called Anxiety Rescue. And uh, you can look it up online on our website. You also should know that we have a fantastic secret sisterhood. And this is a Facebook group that you cannot look up, actually. Um, Nobody can see it. No one can see the comments you make in it or who's in it. But it's a group of incredibly supportive women. There is a small fee, $15 for three months. But this is the most incredible group of people. If you're interested in that, please reach out to us. And... We will be appearing at the Active Minds Conference. It's in Washington, D.C., February 20th to 22nd. And Active Minds, for those of you who don't know, it's a phenomenal nonprofit organization that really focuses on the young adult experience with mental health. So they work with college students and they have a a speakers bureau of young people who go around and talk about, you know, living with mental health issues. And they really are are doing a lot to eradicate the stigma that so often accompanies anxiety and depression and other mental health disorders, and also to make the conversation mainstream and worldwide, which is certainly what Maggie and I want to do too. So very exciting conference. We're going to have a booth there. So stop by and see us. Yes. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. And as always, if you have feedback, especially compliments, questions, or an idea for a podcast, please email us. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety sisters. Don't go. Why are you stopping? Why do you stop? It's not anxiety sisters. Anxiety sisters don't go it alone. It's a sentence. Okay. Anxiety sisters. Okay. One, two, three. Anxiety Anxiety sisters don't go it alone. Now, was that so hard? You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2020, 
all rights reserved.